Hey, hi, and hello, everyone. Welcome back to She's Mental. Oh, it's been a little while. I've needed a bit of a break, quite honestly. I've been absolutely smashed with uni assignments, with a lot of advocacy work, a lot going on in my professional life, as well as a lot in my personal life. All, almost of them are really brilliant things, but me being me, with my ADHD brain, I'm rather overwhelmed. So I've just had to take a moment to recoup and focus on my health and bam, here I am again on your Spotify or your Apple Music or whatever platform you choose to listen to me on. And on another note, I would like to give a big thanks to one of my friends who has helped me deck out my recording studio slash closet a little bit. Um, <laughs> One of my friends within my journalism degree um, works a job where he was able to secure me some acoustic panelling for the inside walls of my closet. I know, I have a bougie closet now. (laughs) But so if the audio quality is a little bit better, you can thank him. I shall not reveal his name due to privacy purposes, but uh, he knows who he is. He kind of Looks like Fezco from Euphoria, if any of you have seen it. It's kind of terrifying. Anyway, okay, I'll stop there. (laughs) Some other exciting news is that She's Mental is getting a producer on board, which is super, super exciting. Um, It will be another old friend of mine. She has a wealth of experience. She's worked for the ABC before, um, helped run the ABC Haywire program, which promotes the stories and lives of regional and rural Western Australians. And she's just an absolute gem. And so look out for the beginning of May because that's when some changes and some shakeups will be happening with the podcast. Nothing too dramatic to start with, but we're just going to get a little bit more polished and a little bit more refined with our structure, sound quality, the way we present things. So yeah, super, super exciting. And I want to thank you all for being so patient with me whilst I took some time to just have a breather. Advocacy work can be incredibly taxing both mentally and physically. And I know that it has been affecting my physical health as well as my mental health. So I really, really appreciate you all for sticking around. But yeah, it's been a really weird time for me outside of everything professional and study-wise. I have started medication for my ADHD, which is weird territory to navigate when you've gone your whole life undiagnosed and untreated so it's it's still something I'm getting my head around and weighing up side effects weighing up the positives still adjusting my dose I'm only on the starting dose at the moment so we're seeing how we go it's been an up and down couple of weeks but I've had some really really brilliant moments and I've had some really brilliant friends to support me along the way so So now I'm back and I'm ready to talk mental health with you all. So to begin with, this episode I would like to issue a trigger warning for because there are multiple subjects in this one that are going to be pretty heavy. There are going to be some anecdotes and statistics that come up that aren't pretty 
And if you do not feel safe at any time or if you feel that any of the, the subjects I'm about to list will potentially be harmful for you, then you do not have to listen any further. Uh, there will be mentions of hospital trauma, self-injury, suicide and eating disorders, especially in young people. There will also be mentions of trauma within families. So again, if any of that makes you uncomfortable, feel free to click out at any point. Do not ever feel obliged to listen to any of my content if it's not for you or if you're just simply not in the place to hear it right now. But if you are and you are still listening, thank you for starters. It's not easy stuff to hear, especially when you come from your own lived experience. It can bring up a lot of trauma and a lot of emotions and a lot of prior experiences for people who've been through similar things that I'll be talking about here but I would like to encourage you to practice some self-care before during and after my podcast take a couple of breaks go get some water go get some air maybe even stop and listen to a little bit of it one day and then a little bit of it the next day this one could potentially be a bit of a long one because we are getting into a lot of nitty-gritty policy stuff and mental health system stuff so don't be afraid to take breaks. And if you have any questions about anything at any time, please feel free to message the She's Mental Instagram at She's Mental Podcast. I will also be providing some resources on the promotional posts for today's episode on my socials, just so if you need a bit of help afterwards, if you want someone to chat to, that isn't me or is someone completely objective, someone who doesn't know you, you can go access those resources. Today's topic is known as the missing middle. Now, the missing middle is a concept that has been fundamental to my mental health advocacy over the past two years. And it is something that if the theory was further recognised within not only healthcare professionals but within government, we would be seeing far less deaths, a much less overwhelmed ER and clinical care system and we would be preventing a lot of young people from even getting to crisis in the first place before they have to seek out assistance for battling things such as suicidal ideation. Now, the missing middle is a theory that was developed by an Irish youth mental health expert, Dr. Patrick McGorry. He's won an Order of Australia medal for his contribution to youth mental health. And Dr. McGorry is also a professor of youth mental health at the University of Melbourne. Within his own work, as well as his work being the founder and leader of Victorian Youth Mental Health Agency Origin, he has identified something within mental health care that is a problem across the nation. It began with a Royal Commission by the Victorian government into Victoria's mental health care system and also the Productivity Commission's inquiry into mental health. And it's exposed a consistent gap in mental health care everywhere. 
The problem with our government on federal and state levels is that we are funding mental health care services that are on two extreme ends of the spectrum. We have many, many low acuity services such as Headspace, which are only designed to assist with navigating day-to-day life growing up as an adolescent, as well as very mild mental health disorders. Then at the other end of the scale, we have services that are designed for when young people have unfortunately either made attempts on their life or have active plans to make attempts on their life or who are going through suicidal ideation, things such as mania and psychosis. So we only have things that cater either to our very, very, very sickest young people, young and old, but in this episode, I'm going to be talking specifically about youth mental health. And then on the milder end, we have headspaces that are overwhelmed with young people who are deemed too severe for their services or are turned away or even worse have really negative experiences with these services because they're simply not designed to actually give them the level of care that they need, number one. And number two, they are overwhelmed with the influx of numbers that are of people who are trying to seek help. And this is where the missing middle comes in. The missing middle is the gap between these two extremes of preventative, intensive, responsive and accessible community support and preventative care for young people. There are no services that focus solely on community support and preventative care. There are elements of this dotted here and there within universities, such as group therapies, and even then that is taking it from a clinical approach. But there, is, there are barely any services that I can pinpoint right now as someone with intensive experience volunteering and working within the youth mental health sector that cater to this missing middle, that cater to this massive gaping hole that so many young people are falling through. Now, we know what intensive means. We know what responsive means. However, people often get confused with the community aspect. And when I say community, I mean assisting young people to integrate themselves back into regular day-to-day life to get them back into their, whether that's their sporting club, back to university, being able to support them economically, supporting them and upskilling them to get them a job helping them get back to the things they love and be around people they get along with, while also having support services from these systems in place and having someone to talk to and someone to reach out to and having treatments that prevent isolation, prevent mental health as much as possible from getting worse. Because our most sick and vulnerable are often our most isolated. And as humans... You can be the most introverted person in the world, but at the end of the day, we all need human connection. And often when you're not doing well, and I know especially for me when I'm not doing well within myself, my first instinct is to isolate. 
and we need to nip that in the bud. But when it gets to the point where a young person is crying out and out again to healthcare professionals to be heard, to be seen, to feel validated for treatment, for medication, for all these services that just don't have capacity, then we've already failed because we should be doing everything in our power to prevent them from getting to that point, to make sure our young people are being seen and heard and cared for and their potential is not being wasted and that they can use their potential however they see fit, that it is their choice and their path and their way. And they, despite what they're going through, despite what they've been through, despite their lived and their living experience, they can live the life and be the person they want to be. And currently our system is failing us because it is not doing that. It is not giving the young people the peace, the health, the well-being, the compassion, the support, and the life skills to thrive as a young person in general, let alone the world that we are currently living in right now. And the statistics don't lie. The Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services in Western Australia have stated that in the past decade, emergency departments in the metropolitan area have increased by 214% in presentations of self-harm suicide risk and attempted suicide cases in the 13 to 17 year old age group. There has been a 403 increase in the under 13s. I'd implore you all though to remember that this is only for Perth. We're not even taking into consideration within these statistics the numbers around regional and remote young Australians. We're not taking into account Aboriginal communities who have a significantly higher risk of passing by suicide and attempts of suicide than other Australians. We're not talking about the death rates surrounding anorexia nervosa and other eating disorders. Anorexia has a 20% death rate within the first five years of onset. 20% of young people who are diagnosed with anorexia pass away after five years. And yet, why aren't we doing more to prevent this? Another example is the Australian Mental Health Index, which is a kind of scale of our mental health in Australia that's run by LifeWorks. And it's showing consistently that our mental well-being is falling. Now, on this, on this rating, anything below zero indicates a decline in mental well-being. And our rating in January was minus 11.9. Not to mention that the economic cost of mental ill health is massive. Like, put aside all of the health issues, all of the burden of disease it has, how it's the leading cause of death for Australians 15 to 44. Put all of that aside. It is counterintuitive 
for a government who loves their money to not implement preventative mental health care. Mental illness costs our country around $220 billion every year. And workplaces are responsible for around just under $18 billion of that amount. And this includes people who are too anxious or who are just too impaired and are struggling too much with their mental ill health to join the labour force, to keep work, to attend work. So theoretically, even if all the wrinkly old white dudes in a room who run this country and who run our states didn't really care or understand about, you know, actual people's lives and families with young people who are dying, well, you would think they'd care about the money they're losing because they seem to care about that, don't they? Apparently not. Apparently, we're just statistics to them and they only care about having their shiny red ribbons to cut when they open a new facility such as a headspace or a new shiny hospital with very limited beds, underpaid, overworked, limited staff members. But hey, it looks good in the media, right? Now, a disclaimer, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have funding for those services because all moving parts, every part of this scale needs to be attended to. But... The minute funding for one of these areas is out of kilter, the whole system has an issue. So that's why we're focusing on the missing middle. And to really understand the missing middle, I'm going to take you through something that I actually do within my journalism degree. Now, in my radio news class, we have three hours to sit down. We have an editorial meeting. And after that, we have to hit the phones call someone associated with our own story, get an interview off them, get a grab off them, edit and write a quick radio bulletin and submit it before the end of the three hours. And to get what is known as our talent, our talent are the people involved within the story that we can potentially talk to, to get a story to present to our lecturers, we split them up into three groups. Now, to understand a story, you have to understand the players, the spectators, and the periphery. Players and spectators are pretty obvious, but the periphery are the experts. So, the players in the case of the missing middle, we have the WA government and mental health minister Amber Jade Sanderson. We have the state government splitting and then reunison of the mental health and health portfolios in Cabinet as a contributing factor to this. We have the Mental Health Commission. We also have the Department of Health for WA. And not to mention federal government do have a say in the dividing of the budget. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to be focusing on the Western Australian government, as that is the government I'm most well versed with. And for a lot of you, for most of my listeners, you'll be listening from WA. 
However, that's not to say that this doesn't have national relevance, as there are many similar issues across the board. As for the spectators, we have, oh, I guess we could kind of call these guys players as well, because they do have a certain element of say in airing grievances and making changes in government. But we have the opposition party in state government. And then actual spectators include the families of young people who have lived experience of mental ill health and those who have unfortunately passed by suicide or other means as a result of their mental health. We have young people and young advocates such as myself who are speaking up on behalf of themselves and on behalf of their community. We have community mental health workers. We have clinicians in the field. We have the WA Association of Mental Health, which are a non-governmental organisation that acts as a peak body for mental health in WA. Another one which I forgot to mention in the players portion of this explanation is the media, which is rather ironic considering I am a journalism student with my own podcast producing a form of media that actually talks about mental health. But we are players as well because we are the ones to serve the truth to the people. However, some media outlets do that way better than others. And then... We have the periphery, which are experts and research leaders, such as Dr. Patrick McGorry. People like him don't have an Order of Australia for no reason. We also have organisations such as the Australian Psychology Society. We have Beyond Blue. We have the Black Dog Institute. We have research institutions surrounding mental health. We also have our Chief Health Officer, we have our chief psychiatrist, Nathan Gibson, who is both player and periphery in his role as chief psychiatrist within the Mental Health Commission. Now, all of us have our parts to play. Pardon the pun. <laughs> the players are the ones who can actually make a tangible, tangible difference or who contribute to shaping the decision making in more of a primary way. And unfortunately, a lot of our spectators should be players when they aren't being seen as such. As someone coming from a point of lived experience, I may not, even though I do work in some capacities within the field, I was part of the ministerial task force into the implementation of child and adolescent mental health care services in WA. And that was a report which was just published last week with the announcement of some mental health care system overhauls, which I will speak about later. So I do have some say, but at the same time, I have no control at the end what the Mental Health Commission decides to report back to government. And from then on, what government actually implements. Because a lot of the time, what they say they've implemented they like to twist words and phrases that advocates use often and twist it into their own thing. So it looks like they're funding what is actually needed, but they've actually given it a whole new life of its own and are pushing funding into something that is actually not required, 
nor is going to be helpful at the time. With the spectators, our job is to make a lot of noise. So that is your lived experience advocates. That is everyone who has ever experienced a mental health condition, whether they speak up about it or not, whether they are private with their mental health or not, whether they are seeking treatment or are diagnosed or not. They are all people which are affected by this and their lives could be at stake as a result of what decisions the government makes. We have the families who live with the loss of loved ones every day, who look after loved ones, who are full-time carers sometimes of loved ones, who they themselves have developed their own mental health challenges through whether that be the vicarious trauma of constantly reliving their child's experiences through memory or advocacy on their behalf, whether that be trauma through burnout and compassion fatigue and caring for someone more than they are even able to care for themselves, trauma through consistently not being heard, even though they have lost someone they loved They have had to bury a child and yet government are still turning around and saying, we are doing enough. They're not. And I am as sceptical as I am about these upcoming reforms, which I'll discuss later on. I am thankful that they've recognised that there does need to be change because it's currently unacceptable. One thing I did want to actually discuss was my reaction to the press conference in which our mental health minister, Amber Jade Sanderson, announced the ministerial task force into CAM services being released. I was on that task force. It was a comprehensive analysis of where we're going wrong in regards to child and adolescent mental health services in the public sector of the mental health system. And there was one line that Amber Jade Sanderson said that particularly irked me and particularly enraged me. And what she said was that The Commonwealth and the private sector needs to step up, not just the public sector. The audacity of her to say that when all these changes that we are making have come way too late for for the beginning. And I understand that the Commonwealth nationwide, we need to all step up. But hang on, the private sector? Yeah, look, it's not perfect over there either. But back to my point where the most vulnerable, the most isolated people, the people who need the, probably the most care for their mental health and who are most predispositioned to developing mental ill health, are those who access our public sector. So why are we turning the focus on private? As I said, it's not perfect throughout the whole system. There are, I'm sure... As I have seen and experienced myself, there are plenty of service gaps within private healthcare, regardless of if that's 
for your physical health or your mental health. However, why are we denying accessible, affordable care to the people who need it most? Why have we been how why have we been denying them that for so long and yet we have the audacity to turn around and be like oh but private sector you guys first you guys do it you guys do it as well and forgive me that may be my subjective emotional side of me coming through in this but at the same time the statistics of admissions into ER systems and public systems have gone through the roof recently. I mean, it's not an entirely new thing. We've been overwhelmed as a system for a very long time, especially the public sector. But in the last two to three years, given, you know, the world, it's gone up. The statistics are speaking for themselves. So I am mad and I'm going to be mad here. And another thing I'm really, really sick of is how this kind of thing is only ever brought up around election time. Mental health shouldn't be a political issue. It is the well-being and lives of families. Why are we politicising it and using it? Why are mental health advocates such as myself being used as pawns? in the game of trying to win the next the next seat or to win votes. As my former broadcast lecturer has said to me many a time and something that I have repeated to many people and that will always stick with me, the best bastardry is bipartisan because it's all a game. It's all a game. That's what it is. And so I have been finding it increasingly difficult as my understanding grows of the media and politics and the world and of how everything runs. I found advocacy to be increasingly difficult and more emotionally taxing for me. There's an MP on the opposition party of Western Australia that I have a lot of history with. She gave me the opportunity to be able to get into advocacy and to start making some noise. And she is a lovely, lovely human. Cannot praise her enough as a person. However, when I gave my most recent news interview to Channel 10 and Channel 9, I just can't help but feel as if We're only bringing this up when it's relevant and powerful for government and we should be bringing it up year round. We should be talking about it until something's done. And the only time that either party, either major party seems to care is when election, the election comes around and when there's something actually at stake for them. Now, the reason why I've lent my time to this MP is because they are actually kicking up a stink about it year round. But what irritates me is that we're only giving people platforms on the media and like in other aspects of things to talk about it when there's an election coming up or when it's mental health week or when it's youth week or like, fuck it. People are dying all year round. 
I can't just get up one morning and decide that my mental health issues aren't there. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't have the privilege of picking and choosing when this matters to us. This will matter to me and my family and the people I love and potentially my future children until I die. We don't have the privilege of choosing when to worry and when to not, when to care and when to not. So I'm fucking sick of being a pawn, to be honest. I know that's not how this particular MP has treated me and I have willingly gone along with their, um, with the advocacy because I'm very privileged to be able to have the platform to speak out about these kinds of things. And when I'm given an opportunity, I'm more than happy to take it. However, I just would like to make a comment on the broader scheme of things, the broader sort of spectrum that is mental health and the way that it is weaponized in politics. And adding on from that, I couldn't even mention anything on about the task force in my news interview because it hadn't been released yet. Now, I have somewhat of an understanding around that, but there's also many grey areas as to what I can speak out about in a lot of my advocacy because I do a lot of behind-the-scenes work with the Mental Health Commission. And there's a lot of things I wish to speak on, but it is such a grey area. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I had one of my dear friends from Newspeak which is the journalism club for like all of the universities, everyone who studies journalism, we sort of have networked and banded together. So he is actually a journalist now, this friend of mine, who works for the ABC. And he called me up at 7.30 at night and said, I'm so sorry to bother you this late, but could I potentially get a grab from you in regards to your comments and thoughts on the reforms? And there's so much stuff I couldn't say and there's so much that I probably even can't say here. But we haven't done enough, not in a quick enough time. I have spoken to Kate Savage's mother. I've spoken to Cohen Fink's mother. I've spoken to my Uber driver who happened to be a worker at Bentley Mental Health Hospital, who has seen some of his clients in past take their own life. And just try telling any of them that we've done enough. You can't. As I said, we are the people who don't get a choice of caring about this or not. This is our life. This is who we are and how we'll be for the rest of our lives. In the most recent press conference that I've done in my advocacy, I had the pleasure of meeting an eating disorder advocate, uh, Donald Irving. Now, Donald made a brilliant point when he was speaking to the media. If this was cancer, you would step on it before it metastasized. You'd step on it quickly. And yet, the very same man nearly lost his daughter when she was 24 due to her eating disorder. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. One in five people who struggle with an eating disorder will sadly pass away. And yet we are not giving mental ill health the same credence as other health issues. As for my own experiences, I remember in August of 2020, I suffered an attempt and I presented to Fiona Stanley Hospital via ambulance in need of assistance and I waited something like eight hours before I could even get a bed and they said to me if you would like support from our psychiatrists you will have to wait until tomorrow evening at the earliest and this was the early hours of the morning or you can choose to leave in the morning and we'll provide some wraparound support and we will follow up with you once you're discharged. Unfortunately, due to my lack of finances and just having started a new job in a new city, I it wasn't really feasible for me to have to wait that long to receive psychiatric services there. So I told the nurses and doctors that I would stay until the morning, the later morning where I had calmed down enough to the point where I was safe so I could go and the following, like that morning when I woke up, I wasn't even guided out of the hospital. My, I was shouted at to wake up. I had the sides of my bed pulled down. I wasn't even pointed towards the exit. I had to wander through the hospital in my garb, just wander around until I found an exit because I didn't know where to go. And I didn't receive a call. I didn't receive any resources to help me. I didn't receive a number. I did not receive any wraparound support in the following days. I didn't receive any follow-up, nothing. And... I hear too many stories that are the same. And to an extent, I can get why our ERs can be so shit at dealing with mental health admissions. Number one, compassion fatigue is a massive thing within the health sector. Because staff are underpaid, overworked, not adequately trained in a lot of areas, especially, especially mental health, because it isn't made compulsory unless you are specifically a mental health nurse. Number two, even with physical health, unless it's blatantly visible that you are suffering, it's not easy to triage and it's not easy to prioritise. So, if someone with mental ill health comes in and an individual, a worker, doesn't have an understanding of mental health or mental ill health and on the outside they seem, not 100%, but they seem relatively okay, of course they're going to sweep it under the rug. It's horrible. It should not be happening. We should have staff trained to deal with this, but it does happen nonetheless. And when... We're so under-resourced over here, especially in WA. 
we just have to prioritise with what we've got. There are so many people out there doing the best with what they have at the time, even if that's not much. And a lot of the time it's not much in the ways of mental health education. But my main point is, from all of that, from detailing my experience and detailing Don's experience with his daughter and detailing the experiences of Meryn Savage and Pamela Fink, is that if we had access or our families had access to community supports and accessible care before we got to crisis, we would most likely have our loved ones still here with us or we wouldn't have been through so much trauma as a result of just trying to tread water. Now, after all this, you're probably thinking, okay, well, we know what's wrong with the system. It's fucking depressing. But how, how do we fix it? What do we do? How do we make changes? There are many things that I would do if I was in the decision-making chair. However, I'm not. And all I can do is state what I think needs to change and state why that is and keep stomping and speaking up and speaking loud wherever I can. So one way to make a change is by doing the same, speaking up, speaking out wherever you can, whether that is on something as simple as a social media post or as forward as writing to your local members of parliament about mental health, mental ill health, and why you think community resources and accessible supports that wrap around young people with mental ill health issues are so important. You can volunteer in mental health spaces. You can volunteer as part of Lifeline, as part of Headspace, as part of all of the resources that we already have that are struggling as a means of trying to patch up the gaps wherever we can. You can just be fucking kind to people because you, when you see someone, whether that be an acquaintance, a friend, a loved one, chances are on that day, unless they've explicitly gone into detail with you what they're going through or what they're dealing with, you only know the tip of the iceberg. So just be fucking kind because you don't know what they're going through or what they're dealing with. Don't ever underestimate the power of just simply being a nice person, simply being compassionate, simply being patient with people. You can also speak up in your workplace. If you see a colleague struggling, obviously there are certain issues of privacy where someone may not wish to divulge information and that's okay. But if you see someone not doing well, just be like, hey, what's going on? And if you have an employee assistance program, it, making them aware of that, that there are options for counselling and options for help if they need within their workplace. If you are a business owner, making sure that you have policies and procedures around mental health, mental ill health, sick leave, being able to take mental health days, as well as checking in regularly with your staff members and employees. Workplace culture is such a big thing when it comes to people who struggle with their mental health. Because for us, finding and keeping work is a lot harder than most people think. 
So when we enter a workplace that is kind and accessible and patient, it can make a whole world of difference to our stress levels, our lives, our finances, our sense of self and our sense of confidence and our own personal autonomy. Now, my final little suggestion that I have today, none of us really can control it unless we are Mark McGowan or someone high up in cabinet in the state. However, I would go back to having the mental health and the health portfolios split in cabinet rather than having one person cover both mental health and health because there are many issues with this. Number one, mental health and health, when blended, it often leads to the clinicalization of mental health and the crisis support and the hospital end of mental health when, as we've said, we need to be talking about preventative services. So it can all get a little bit blurred when those portfolios are blended. Number two, fucking COVID. COVID is such a massive issue for all of us. And yes, it does entail mental health because I don't think I've met a single person who can safely say they haven't been affected in some way, shape or form by the pandemic. However, because COVID is such a big fish in this sea of shit that the world is at the moment, mental health kind of falls by the wayside when there, whenever there's anything about a new strain or vaccine mandates or mask mandates or new sort of restrictions or anything like that. It's a big issue and it's important to be updated about and to talk about and to have good leadership in that way. But I just think that there is too much going on in health and our healthcare system is already fucked as is in regards to lack of resources that it's too much to have mental health and health together because they are both such weighty things and each of them needs individualized attention Whew. well i'd like to thank you all for staying with me on that rather intense ride in regards to dissecting our system as it is at the moment and the state of play we're in if you need any support or any resources i will be publishing some links and some numbers and some contact details for things on the she's mental instagram at she's mental podcast thank you all so much for listening and i'm apologetic that this wasn't a happier episode or a lighter episode but at the same time I think that if you're here you understand the importance of mental health as a topic and by proxy understand that the system we're in needs to change. I'd also like to thank you all for your patience in regard to the lapse in episodes recently. Things should be fully on track by the start of May I'm, I'm really hoping, fingers crossed, with the help of my new producer. I am actually flying out to Melbourne um, on this Thursday coming up, the 14th. So I'll be gone for two weeks. And the reason behind my trip will be something that I'll be discussing in next episode. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for staying mental with me and I'll see you next episode.